Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Sadie Blanchard, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. We'll be discussing her paper, Contracts Without Courts or Clans, How Business Networks Govern Exchange. I'll have a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Sadie, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so happy to be here. Sadie, I'd like to start this conversation by asking you, what do existing economic and legal theories say about extra-legal private ordering in the absence of robust judicial enforcement? When will that extra-legal private ordering emerge? How does it work? And in this paper, how do you challenge or expand on that prior work? There's an extensive literature in economics and legal scholarship about how small, tight-knit groups keep commitments when judicial backing is not available. And case studies of groups of traders that trade in this way without relying on legal systems are widely understood as implying that you have to have either ethnic ties or a close-knit, geographically concentrated community in order to sustain trade like this, reputation-backed trade, when that's the only thing sustaining trade. And there are two things that are seen as important in this kind of close-knit community model. One is the existence of information channels that sort of exist organically as part of community life and that allow information about behavior and trading relationships to spread at low cost. The idea is if everybody's meeting at the synagogue every week or several times a week anyway, that creates an opportunity for people to talk about how others are behaving in economic relationships as well. And there's also a high cost of exit. So either because it's a group of traders that's uh, sort of a discrete and insular minority and in their social uh, life, they don't have opportunities to trade outside of the group or Because social life and trade are so intertwined among members of the group that the consequences of bad business behavior spill over into social life. So that high cost of exit is seen as pretty important. In recent years, there's some work arguing that reputational governance can bond high stakes commitments in a wider set of groups. So there are a few scholars that have pointed to groups that look very different. They're heterogeneous and they're not groups in which social life is deeply intertwined with economic life. And there are some scholars saying, look, you see sort of reputation back trade working in these cases too. An example is there's a work by David Robinson and Toby Stewart on the governance of strategic alliances between biotechnology firms and pharmaceutical companies. And Lisa Bernstein has done a study of Midwestern original equipment manufacturers and their relationships with their suppliers. So there are people who have been recognizing this, but there is still skepticism about whether that's really what's going on in these situations. So while there have been some scholars recently who have pointed to groups of traders that seem to be relying on reputation in networks 
in situations that don't look like the kind of clan or close-knit community, there's still skepticism about whether that's really what's going on in these groups of traders. One source of skepticism is the question of how much work reputation can do when the undertaking is complex and it's hard to tell what really happened when things go wrong. The idea is the signals are noisy and it's hard to get the truth out about what really happened. If a project or a collaboration fails, did it fail because somebody didn't do what they promised to do or did it fail because of some exogenous factor? And there's also the question of when you have a heterogeneous group, where it's easy to come and go, whether the sort of loss of the future collaborations within the group is enough of a threat if people have a lot of outside options. In your paper, you look at a case study, the reinsurance business, that challenges some of the conditions that existing theory would say need to exist for private ordering to take place or how private ordering might take place. What motivated you to choose this particular industry and the time period that you chose to study this industry in? What kinds of sources did you consult as you're putting this case study together? And how did you go about building it? My friend, Matt Jenna John, who's at BYU, introduced me to reinsurance. He was interested in studying this industry and he sent me a white paper that was published, I think, by one of the reinsurance firms about how do we do reinsurance contracts now? The way that we're doing business is very different. To some extent, they were being required by regulators to do their contracts in a more formal way, and they were trying to figure out how to do it. And this paper had all of this really tantalizing information about this industry and sounded so fascinating. So it was talking about multi-million dollar deals that were done with scribbles on a napkin or handshakes, and this idea that state regulators were now telling them or passing rules that they had to finalize these really big contracts within nine months entering into them. So it seemed really unusual and interesting. And I've been interested for a long time in private ordering and especially how groups combine sort of extra legal forms of doing business with with legal forms of doing business. So it looked like a really interesting industry. And I was able to learn quite a lot about how people did business because They had a strong self-conception as people who did things in an unusual way, and they wrote about it quite a bit. So there was trade literature, there were books and memoirs that people wrote over the years, and I was able to learn quite a bit about the industry in that way. There's also been an upsurge in interest in reinsurance in the last few years, and so I found some good studies by an economic historian and some sociology studies There were still gaps, though. And to fill in those gaps, I did interviews. I ended up talking to 17 people who've worked in the industry for decades. And I set out to interview people who started as long ago as possible. I really wanted to understand how things were done kind of in the old days. So I think we might be able to talk a little bit later about how things have changed more recently, but I really wanted to know about the old days. So I interviewed people and it was challenging to find people who started that long ago. So my first pass through, I found this old book that had been written about reinsurance. And I had my research assistants and I went and tried to find all the people who had written chapters in this book. And we got a lot of obituaries. There weren't a lot of people who were still around, but I was able to find people, thankfully, and they were very generous and talking with me about how they did business. And I learned a lot. It was really a lot of fun learning about the industry from them. It's great that you were able to preserve this piece of 
industry history. And I wondered if you could maybe talk about how reinsurance traders were able to carry on a trade which was both complex and dealt with large risks in monetary terms, as you mentioned, without relying on legal enforcement by courts or socio-reputational enforcement by a very tight-knit network. How did that work from what you've learned? I'll talk about three structures or mechanisms that they use that I describe in the paper. The first is they were able to establish initial cooperation by using contract design features that aligned their incentives and committed to transparency. So the incentive alignment part was a reinsurance contract would be between a primary insurer, so the insurer that has the coverage relationship with the consumer or the homeowner or the business, and then the reinsurer on the other hand. So the reinsurer would require the primary insurer to keep a certain percentage of the risk on its own books, and that's known as the retention requirement. And the retention requirement would be set high enough so that if the risks ended up being very bad, it would be painful for the primary insurer, but it wasn't so high that it would cause the primary insurer to become insolvent and go out of business. So they would calibrate how much risk each party undertook. And it was most often done, especially at the beginning of a relationship in the form of what's called quota share reinsurance. So the reinsurer and the primary insurer would each keep a certain percentage of the risk and they would get that same percentage of the premiums. Together with that, reinsurance took the form of what's known as treaty reinsurance. So most reinsurance is done this way. One of the problems that the reinsurers encountered in the very early days was that insurance companies would reinsure their worst risks. So they would underwrite very risky policies, and then they would pass those along to the reinsurers. The idea of treaty reinsurance was that the reinsurer would reinsure a whole category or class of risks, not just one particular policy. So it might be, for example, all car insurance policies in Boston that are written over the next year. And that whole class of risk would be, they call it, ceded to the reinsurer in advance. So any policy that would be written during the term would be ceded, a proportion of it would be ceded to the reinsurer. The primary insurer then wasn't picking and choosing which risks to pass along and which risks to keep. It was obligated to pass on a part of every risk. So the retention requirement reduced the moral hazard. So the primary insurer couldn't go and dole out parts of the policy to a lot of reinsurers and keep none of it. It had to keep some amount of it on its books. And then the commitment to transparency was a promise by the primary insurer to basically make its books available for auditing at any time. So the reinsurer would be able to investigate if it had any reason to wonder whether the primary insurer was being diligent in what claims it was underwriting or how much scrutiny it did before paying claims. That's the first mechanism that allowed cooperation to get off the ground, this idea of aligning incentives and being transparent. But by doing this, the parties also were gradually building a network. So every new relationship that was formed in this way, not every, but very often, was the beginning of a pretty long-term relationship. The parties would get to know each other. They could assess each other's capabilities and character. And then that was one node built on the network. Gradually over time, you had parties then being connected to each other in multiple ways. So we now have a third person who knows both of us and information is now able to be passed along through a lot of different channels. Once the network became thick enough, you started seeing different kinds of transactional structures. So the parties were no longer 
so dependent on the incentive alignment that they had to do this kind of very narrow range of transaction. So as pairs of companies got to know each other better, but also as the network grew and there were more connections between different traders, you would start to see more variety in terms. One form of transaction that developed later was excess of loss reinsurance. So instead of each side taking on an equal part of the risk or a proportion of the risk equal to the premiums that it would take, the reinsurer might take on a proportion of everything over a certain threshold. Much riskier for the reinsurer to take that on, but it was something that developed later on. The second mechanism is targeted investment and relationships. And this was used to bridge between clusters of closely connected reinsurance traders. So you had centers of reinsurance trade in some cities. The New York, Connecticut area was one region. At certain times, London was important. You had Munich, for example. So you had clusters in different parts of the world. And in each of those clusters, it was classic reputation by gossip, right? People could talk about what was going on. But because of the need to spread risk widely, people could not only trade with other people in their hub. The reinsurance industry was really built on this idea of spreading risk broadly. So they had to be doing business with people in lots of different places. And so one of the ways to bridge between those clusters was to cultivate close personal relationships with select targeted people in other clusters. People will talk about how business became a family affair. They really put effort into becoming good friends, introducing their families to one another, taking vacations together. And so this was both important for establishing a bilateral relationship that allowed two traders to do higher value and riskier deals with one another. It also, though, created a channel for information to spread about what was going on in each of their respect corners of the network. And then finally, you had mass information channels. Two annual meetings were convened in Baden-Baden, Germany and in Monte Carlo just before the annual contract renewal period, reinsurers and primary insurers would come together and attend these meetings and lots of talking would happen right, about what people were doing, how their performance had been, how they had treated other traders. You also had the trade press and the trade press is pretty entertaining to read because of the level of detail of gossip that is written about what's going on in different firms. So there will be Stories, for example, about what insurance executive was offered a job at this firm and how much they were offered and that they turned it down and there's tension in the office and things like this. So there was this idea that you don't really know what's going to be published about what kinds of things are going on in the office and that encouraged to be on their best behavior and certainly discouraged shirking. Your case study stops in... 1980. Has this system persisted among those in the reinsurance trade? And if not, what happened around that time? Not entirely, but to some extent. And the degree to which the trade is more formal is contested. There are some industry commentators who say, no, it is mostly still based on relationships and Others say that it's not. So some of the indicators are it used to be the norm to stay loyal to a particular reinsurer or one primary insurer to really stay with the same reinsurer for a very long time. Now it's the norm to shop annually. So every year a primary insurer is likely going to be looking around to see if it can get a better deal really on its reinsurance for the year. There's also more third-party adjudication. Now, parties in this industry still rely almost exclusively on arbitration, and they have, well, since the beginning, really. But the story has been that arbitration was rare. 
So even though it was a kind of informal method of dispute resolution, parties were still hesitant to go to it, but there's more of it now. So that suggests maybe some kind of breakdown or at least a change in the way that people are doing business. There are so many things that have changed and affected this industry around the time that people started doing business in a different way, but it's difficult to disentangle the cause and effect. But there are a few possible explanations for what has happened. One is that the kind of qualitative judgment that used to be essential to assessing the quality of an insurance company has been replaced to some extent by data and quantitative metrics. So this might make it easier for reinsurers to assess the performance and the quality of insurers and lower switching costs and make it easier to shop around. It's just easier to tell if an insurance company is a good risk or a bad risk than it used to be. So that's one explanation. Another is that really it was exogenous shocks that changed what was going on here. And those are particularly the mass toxic tort litigation that started around the 1960s. So that put a lot of insurance companies out of business and some reinsurance companies out of business as well. And it put even more of them in a situation where they were very much in danger of going out of business. This sort of shadow of the future relationship, the hope that if you maintain the relationship and maintain high quality and treated your contracting counterparties well, you would have a lot of value in the future disappeared for a lot of parties. It also upended the network to a large extent. Since there were so many companies that went out of business, a lot of the network ties were destroyed, really. Another thing that people in the industry talk about is that changes in the structure of finance, and in particular, market pressure to show short-term results, has made it impossible to do this kind of long-term relational contracting, where maybe the particular reinsurance contract isn't performing well this year, maybe it's not performing well for a few years, but people used to be able to say over the long term, this is going to be valuable for us. They say that it's really hard to do that when they have to answer to shareholders on a quarterly basis or at least an annual basis. What does this case study and what does this paper, what do they offer for contract theory today? And are there any key takeaways for listeners of this conversation or readers of the article? The key takeaway is that where judicially backed contracting isn't feasible for a group of traders, parties can build from the ground up a network that allows them to use reputation to bond their commitments. When does those conditions obtain? When is judicially backed contracting not feasible? Well, there are a lot of transactions that involve important dimensions of exchange that are not easy for courts to verify or to enforce. One reason might be that litigation is too expensive. It's too reputationally costly. So there are reasons why neither party has a credible threat to sue because they have private information that they want to keep private. Or it could be that they're trying to do something that really generalist courts are not going to be good at verifying. Contract scholars have been studying extra legal enforcement, for example, in high technology collaborations. So these are joint ventures or collaborations between between firms to produce things like biotechnology or new computing technology. The idea there is that what the parties are trying to do is often so complex that they can't even specify in advance in any way that you could verify to a court what each side is supposed to do. And so they have to have other ways to promise to each other or commit to each other that they're actually going to put enough effort and investment into the collaboration to make it worthwhile for the other side. This case study shows another way that they can do that. 
it shows that reputational governance and networks can really help parties achieve um, that kind of commitment bonding in circumstances that don't look like a close-knit community or a clan. Our guest today has been Sadie Blanchard, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame. We've discussed her paper, Contracts Without Courts or Clans, How Business Networks Govern Exchange. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Sadie, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.